0: Good morning. We finally made it to church. Uh, at some point in time I was going to start seeing about, uh, purchasing for the church some sort of tracked vehicle that I could go pick up members in and bring them to church. Uh, you know, it just, uh, it started looking, uh, worse and worse and, and, uh, just, uh, you know, all of the times that we had to kind of Hopefully watch the weather and hopefully get it to thaw out and it never got there, but, uh, uh, finally we've got some thawing going on and, uh, we're losing our larger snow piles. It might take a little bit longer for some of the bigger areas, uh, of snow, but, uh, praise the Lord, we're here this morning. Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three. We're gonna, Pick up uh, right around verse uh, ten, eleven, which is where we left off last week. And uh, we were looking at uh, that uh, uh, specifically fifth principle that we see addressed here, uh, which was to put on the new man. And again, when we start talking about putting on and putting off uh, we, we truly need to understand the 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 actuality of how that works. Um, it is uh, not, if you will, a physical sense. Some people think, well, if they put on clothes that that look Christian, if you will, they kind of become Christian. Well, uh, being a Christian isn't about clothes. It's a heart issue. Uh, it's about who we follow. It's about what desires are we looking at. Um, uh, and again, it's not just an intellectual, logical mindset. It is a heart that is inclined to God, a heart that is leaning uh, solely upon him. And when we start looking at that phrase, put on, it is something that is a hard issue, meaning that we have to put off those things that are going to be contrary to God, his word, his holiness, his righteousness, uh, his character, then put on the things that are godly, that are uh, based off of uh, his will and what his word tells us that we should be doing. So we find in this uh, verse five, or excuse me, in verse 10, uh, that fifth principle in Colossians three, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And again, we talked a bit about that. Um, but in verse 11, it says, where there is neither uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, again, remember the theme of this book. It is the preeminence of Christ. Christ is first and foremost. And when we get to this phrase, this is an important verse here, where he says, "Christ is all and in all. Christ completes everything. Uh, with God, never made man to be without God. In the Garden of Eden, it was very, very clear how God had had, had put him in there and and had given him that, if you will, uh, ordination to keep the garden." And again, we've got to understand what that whole concept of keep is all about. People really get that messed up. But when you start thinking about it, when he was supposed to keep that garden over there, uh, what are you going to do to keep a garden that's in perfection? There's no death. There's no insects. There's no disease. What, what, what's he keeping? Well, when we start talking about that keeping of a garden, We're talking about making sure that the right stuff is getting in and the right wrong stuff is staying out. Adam kind of failed in that. Because you will see a serpent showing up, and that thing should have been thrown out. It should should have been removed. Shouldn't have even been allowed to speak or even begin to attempt to beguile Eve. There was a problem there. But as we, we we think about this here, and we think about Christ being in all and man created to have that knowledge of God and knowledge of who He is and have that relationship with Him, it becomes obvious that that Christ, being God Himself, should be that preeminent. Interestingly enough, I you know I, I saw a documentary talking about psycho, uh, the psychological uh, mindsets of individuals, and one of the key things that they pointed out was. Uh, that psychologists all, all agree on this. There is something that is called the God center of the brain. That there's something that is innately in all of us to think and believe of a, of God, if you will, to worship. And, and whatever that is placed there becomes that person's God. God has intended us to believe in Him, has intended us to have that relationship with Him. And again, scientists agree with this. I'm sitting there thinking, how does that fit with your theory of evolution, by the way? But moving on from that point, God is, is, is meant to be all, all complete. No, no, nothing in any way, shape or form is going to, to match what God can fulfill and what God can do. And we find that he's mentioning that here. And he goes through a list of individuals. And again, we look at this and we know that God is not a respecter of persons. We've talked about that in the book of James, and we made that very clear. When it comes to salvation, God is not a respecter of persons. Just because somebody's a billionaire doesn't mean they get bumped to the front of the line when it comes to salvation. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't care how much money a person has doesn't care how much prestige a person has doesn't care uh, uh how an individual uh uh it, it, their their position uh where they came from that none of that matters and this is one of the biggest things you know people make a lot of issues about race and divisions here in in the United States and in the world in general and I will say this very clearly God doesn't care a thing about those. God takes a look at individuals as saved or unsaved. You're born again or you're unregenerate. That's how he sees us. Yes, he sees Israel and Gentiles and he sees that there's, you know, those two separate, if you will, ethnic things. But, uh, but, but when it comes to anyone else, God doesn't look at the color of a person's skin. It's about their heart and their soul. And that is the most important principle that people need to understand this whole issue with race. God had some divisions with tongues and nations and things of that na- nature. And when I say tongues, I'm talking languages, kindreds where they came from. But obviously God kind of lumped them all together with Gentiles and then the Jewish people. But very clearly God makes it very well known that it doesn't matter where you come from. Greek or Jew doesn't make a difference you need Jesus Christ as your first. Doesn't matter, uh, uh, you know what what, uh, uh, what status, if you will, spiritually that a person has, circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't make a difference. God's more concerned about whether you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. When it comes to Barbarian or Scythian, he's talking about those that are, uh, if you will, poorly educated versus those that are highly educated. God doesn't care about the educational background. You still need to make sure Jesus Christ is the first in your life. And again, doesn't matter about your economic condition, bond or free. Are you working or are you a person that, uh, that, that, uh, has freedom and liberty? You know, obviously under the Roman Empire, there were still the people that were there that were slaves and would be indentured servitude and things of that nature. And, and God's making it clear that doesn't matter. God has no concern over that. The idea is, is God is not going to respect the person in those things. What he's going to do is he's going to say, Everybody, all people, need Jesus Christ. And he makes that clear when he starts talking about how, uh, you know, uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There again is the all, the all-inclusive part of this. And as we, we understand putting on the new man, that is the priority. That is putting on of Christ. Everybody needs to do that. everybody needs to have that and we've we've talked about that and we've seen these other verses over in Ephesians chapter four. It makes it very clear second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen is the one that a lot of people are familiar with where we but you know uh, are our new creature in Christ. These are all things that we as believers. Need to understand that regardless of where we came from, regardless of what sin we've committed, God can forgive it all. And we can all come to Christ, and we can all have Him be that preeminent one that guides us, that rules over us, that gives us that direction. Because we find the sixth principle there in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, where he says put on therefore as the elect of God holy and beloved bowels of mercy kindness humbleness of mind meekness long suffering he continues it in verse 13 forbearing one another forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any even as <clears throat> excuse me even as Christ forgave you so also do ye what we find here is something that is a principle that is throughout the Pauline epistles, that is throughout scripture in its entirety. God has a specific design about how we're to treat one another, how we're to treat each other. And what we find here is he says that when you're putting on Christ, there is something else that you put on. When you put on, if you will, clothes... You put on more than one thing. You know, uh, it, it, it's not a unitard. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, one of those onesies that we put children in. You put on various different things. Well, the same is true with Christ. When you're putting on Christ, you're also putting on a very different heart mentality. You're putting on a different thought process, as we talk about in Romans chapter 12. And what he says here is there needs to be a mindset, a mindset that the believer needs to make sure they're putting on. Now, again, the putting on is not an automatic thing. The putting on is a conscience, very specific, if you will, cognitive action. It's something that you must truly think about as you do it in order to accomplish it the way God wants you to. God has a very specific way to do that. And he reminds right here, you know, saying the elect of God, meaning very clearly these are individuals that have a special position. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are part of what he refers to as the elect. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, with Calvinism and all that stuff and reformed theology, that God chose you to be saved and chose others to be. You no, know, everybody has their free will. And that doesn't discount the sovereignty of God because God knows exactly what's going to happen and knows exactly who's going to do what. But one thing that is very clear is is that God is giving the opportunity of salvation to everyone, yeah. not just select people. And in order to be part of that election, you are saying, I am going to trust Christ as my Savior, and you're what he refers to as the elect. Now, in this, he wants us to understand something. God is elected, as as he's previously talked about in the book of Ephesians, he's elected people that have trusted Christ as their Savior to do his will. It's very difficult for an unregenerate person to do the will of God. Why? Number one, because they don't care about the will of God. They care about themselves. That's all they really want to do is just fulfill their own desires and the lusts of their flesh. They don't care a thing about God. Somebody that is elect of God, that it, it, God has elected them to do something specific in that position. We elect leaders. We put them in place to do certain things for us as citizens. Somewhere along the lines, we lost sight of that, and now politicians has become something totally different. But they're supposed to be working for us as citizens to represent us so that no voices get squashed. Well, here God has elected us as believers to do something specific for him. And as part of this election, we are being told that he says, I want you to put on a certain type of thought process, a thought of the heart. And he he, he reminds them, because in this verse 12, because you are elect, you're holy and beloved. That's a hard thing for us to think about. We might grasp the concept of the beloved part. But I tell you, sometimes we do struggle with that. How can God love a sinner such as I? We sing about that, right? And can it be that I should gain the Savior's love? That he would die for me? When we begin to think about that process and how we as believers, we know we mess up, yet that, that doesn't separate us from the love of God. And he comes along like the loving father of a prodigal. And when we return to him and we say, I sinned against you, he embraces us and forgives us according to first John one nine and praise God for God being God. Man doesn't do that. Good grief, man, has no inclination of that. Somebody runs for office, they dig up every single thing that they possibly can, whether it's forgiven or not. Throw it in a person's face and they use that to base it off of whether or not that person should be in office. Who cares? Like well, we should care because we don't want this person, that person. Well, did they pay their dues? Did they make amends of it? Did they restore it? I mean, what did they do about it? But we look at this here and in this principle, he says, "Holy and beloved," and we as believers, we're supposed to be holy because that's how God views us, because He's viewing us, if you will, through the blood of Christ that has forgiven us of all sins, that sin is not held to our account. And praise God for that. Could you imagine if your sins were still being held to your account? Trying to stand in front of Jesus Christ one day and, and, and explain how, how you've done all of these good things. And then he starts showing, well, the books say, if you will, as you go back over there in the book of Revelation, he says the books are opened. And starts going through it. Previous chapter, you know what we found out? Those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, the blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He opens that book and all he sees is read. He doesn't see the sin. He just sees this has been forgiven. All I see is forgiveness. And when we operate with that mindset of we're forgiven, I don't want to do sin, and we're striving to fulfill that commandment of be ye holy as I am holy, saith the Lord, then we as believers must do the same. We must say, okay, if God's holy and I love God, I want to be holy. I don't want to submerge myself in the filth of the world. James talks about that being unspotted from the world. We need to have that mindset. It shouldn't be part of us. And as he's reminding them of this, he's reminding them of who they are. Sometimes we need to be reminded who we are. Cause the devil will tell us who we are. And if you will try to define us by that, he'll look at you and he'll say, you know, all you are is just a sinner. God comes along and as we see throughout scripture, he says, no, that person's a saint. We have a hard time reconciling that, don't we? Well, again, we're human, and we have a tendency to not forgive, even our own selves. Now, along comes the accuser, and that's one of the names of uh, of, of of Satan himself, the accuser, accuser of the brethren. Comes along, and if you will, was accusing Job, saying, Oh Job's will curse you to his face if you take away that protection." Job never did. Why? Because God knew Job better than Satan did. Satan is is I mean he he is one of those 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 entities that is far superior to our intellect. The things that he does, the things that he 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 uh, he's devised, and all those wicked imaginations and. And how all he has to do is just give those simple little things and then man just does the rest and fills in the blank, if you will, takes that and runs with it and creates even more evilness and more wickedness. And we have a tendency to think that's all we are. But if we are still thinking that we're in sin and we're still thinking that that, that's all we're good for is sin and we can't do anything right, And I understand the struggle that goes on over there in Romans chapter 7. But at the end of it, what what, what does Paul do? He praises God, saying he's he's thankful for Jesus Christ, who's going to give him that victory. In the end, that's what it comes down to. When he's wrestling back and forth in that war of, of his mind, which is where that battle takes place, and he starts talking about, oh, wretched man that I am, but then he goes into one of the key, most important things. Turn over there just really quick, quickly. I want you to see this because a lot of people focus on the wrong thing. People get messed up sometimes when they're trying to go through and they're looking at stuff in Scripture and they start looking at certain things and they fail to read the rest of it. They fail to read the rest of the verses. They fail to read what's surrounding it. They fail, to, you know, in context and, and, and how that all fits together. But I'll tell you this. One of the things, you know, he, he says there in verse uh, 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And a lot of people just end the chapter right there. And they go, see, even Paul knows exactly how evil and wicked we are, and and, and and he's just kind of written us all off. We're all just a bunch of sinners. Yeah, I understand we're sinners saved by grace. You know what that makes us? Saints. That's how God views us. That's how God had Paul address them. He didn't address them. He didn't even address the Corinthians as, you bunch of reprobate, no goods, you know, pieces of trash. You know, he, no, he didn't do that. That's what we tell ourselves, though, isn't it? But look at look at how this victory is won, though. Look at how this victory is won. It's with the mindset of the heart, I thank God. The reason people struggle the way that Paul's struggling, describing this struggle, is because they're unthankful. They're not thankful for the salvation that they have. They're not thankful for the forgiveness of sins. And they go back to the old things, and they sit there, and they think about it, and they relish it, and they, 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 they if you will, cogitate about it, and, and, just, and, and bring it up over and over and over and over again. And the devil sits back, and he just goes, oh, look, there goes another one. Not going to do a thing for God today, because they're more focused on what was already forgiven. But I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's where the victory is. So then with the mind, I serve, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's not saying that, you know, oh, I'm gonna go ahead and, you know, serve sin in this regard. He's saying, if I, if my mindset is that I'm still in the flesh, that I still have those fleshly lusts and those fleshly desires that I'm going to fulfill, then yeah, I'm going to serve the law of sin. But if I change my mindset and I'm thankful for the salvation that I have through Jesus Christ, the eternal life, the Holy Spirit to teach me, the word of God to guide me, all of the benefits that he has just given me in abundance over and over and over and over and over again, I'm going to serve the law of God if I've got that mindset. If I've got that mindset. But if I still got the fleshly mindset, I'm going to wind up serving sin. So what does he say? Walk in the spirit, don't walk in the flesh. Choose the godly things. Choose to be holy because you are beloved. Going back over to, to, to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And he starts off with the very first one, and I want to focus on this, bowels of mercies. Bowels of mercies. Now, uh, again, we, we, we've talked about mercy over there in, in the book of James, and I don't want to, to, to rehash everything that we've, we, we've looked at. And if you missed that, go back and listen to what we were talking about with James and, and the importance of mercy and, and how that is one of the things that God expects of us as believers as our duty to fulfill is to exhibit and demonstrate mercy human beings are a merciless lot aren't we we don't we don't exhibit any mercy on i5 no it's all about running them off the road isn't it could you imagine if we had you know machine guns mounted to our cars Little missiles and buttons, you know, all that, you know, sci-fi tech stuff, spy things that you all see out there. All that, and we just press those buttons and blow up the car in front of us, and we were like, yes. You know, it just fulfills a deep, dark thing in your heart. But he says this is what you need to put on. If you're going to put on Christ, you're going to put on the new man. Let's understand some things. You're also going to need to put on bowels of mercies. Now again, we used to look at that word bowels and, and, and we have a kind of a somewhat of an understanding about that. But when you look at the soul, the soul has some mirror parts, if you will, of the physical. Just As there are spiritual things, there are physical things. The soul is part of that spiritual component, okay? Let's understand that. People, I, I can't see your soul per se. I only see your flesh. God sees your soul. And you know what the soul has? The soul has a heart. The soul has a mind. The soul has ears. The soul has lips. The soul has eyes. And here, the soul has bowels. Now when we think of bowels, we think of, you know, the, if you will, the discarding of waste, but that's not exactly what the bowels is talking about in scripture. The bowels is the innermost part of you. It's your guts. It's the deepest, darkest recesses of inside of you. And what he's saying is, in the very You know, when it it gets down to the nitty-gritty of what your composition is about, it should be bowels of mercies. Your mercy needs to be continuing to go every single day. Aren't you glad God's mercy is new every morning? Could you imagine what would happen if all of a sudden God was... Not God, and he just decided to, you know, or just woke up to one day and forgot to extend mercy upon all of us. Wakes up, opens up the drapes in the morning, and sees the whole world on fire. Whoops. God's not like that. God's not like that. Why? Because he's constantly thinking about us. Well, so are we. We're constantly thinking about ourselves, too. And we don't think about God that much. You know, he thinks about you every single moment. Every single moment he's thinking about you. That's what the scripture says. You you can't even count how many times he's thinking about you. He's thinking about you right now. At the same time, he's thinking about the person that's sitting next to you or across from you. Or in the general vicinity. <laughs> or on the other side of the earth. And just because you can do that doesn't diminish how much he's thinking about you. Because that's who God is. We're not God. We can't even keep we can't even keep one thought active. How many times have you, like, been in the middle of a sentence and then you forgot what you were gonna say in the middle of the sentence? That ever happened? No, that, no, that never happens. That never happens. You know, you just all of a sudden you're like, wait, what, what was it? Huh? It's just like, it, it just like falls off. It just, you know, it, it just kind of like one of those things, it's like a train that's going along and all of a sudden there's no bridge and it just, like, yeah! conversation's gone. (laughs) Thought's gone. You don't know where it went. You had no idea where it was going. All you know is it's laying on the bottom of a canyon in the smoking rubble. That's our thought life. God doesn't think like that. Why? Because God's timeless. God knows the past, present, and future all at once. We, we we have a hard time with the past, thinking about the past things that God's done for us, but yet we remember the sin that we've done. We have a hard time in the present, trying to live for God and think about God, at the same time trying not to think about ourselves and what our flesh wants. And sometimes we forget about the future and what God has promised us. We become fearful because we think it's unknown. But I'll tell you this, when it comes down to the bowels of mercies, this is something that we exhibit towards everybody else. Mercy is meant to be demonstrated. You don't just have mercy in your heart and your head. Mercy is meant to be demonstrated. Mercy is meant to be shown to another person. Mercy is meant to be known. You should not be known as a person that is without mercy. God makes it clear. If that's going to be your concept of how you judge things without mercy, God will judge you without mercy. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. But he says not only are you supposed to exhibit mercy, and let's be con- you know, very cognizant of what mercy is about. Mercy is is, is that, that, that concept of Realizing that you have the ability to forgive and to not, if you will, condemn and punish another person even though they may justly deserve it. So many times people will quote the Bible. Again, like we were talking about Romans 7, they forget that last verse, right? But you know what they do latch onto? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Really? Go back and read that. Go back and read that. You're going to claim that one little part of the law? Uh, Let's be careful with that. There's some other stuff that you probably would want to claim along the way. But, you know, here we are, you know, talking about that concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why, why do we want to do that? We want vengeance. That eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was all under the, the concept of God being the avenger. God being the, the one that goes and takes care of that and handles those things. In a just manner. And not everything was equal eye for an eye. You go back over there. Somebody stole from you. What did the guy have to do? He had to repay it seven times over. So it wasn't always eye for an eye. It was an eye for seven eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Or seven eyes for an eye, however you want to put it. We've got to be careful about that. But part of that mindset is also, you know, to blend in with it together to again, as, as God's showing this, this, this mindset of the heart in this, these passages of 12 and 13, who were supposed to put on, put on the bowels of mercy, but look at the next one, kindness. This again goes back over there with Ephesians chapter 4 verses, you know, 30, 31, and 32. You know, even the world wants kindness. You know, they say perform random acts of kindness. I'm sorry, but that's a little bit offensive to me. Random acts of kindness? So what, kindness is just random? Kindness is not without purpose? Kindness just kind of happens upon us? No, kindness is an inclination of the heart. Kindness is something that we want to do every single day to every single person. Not just something that just spontaneously falls upon us, like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, that that poor person, oh, I'm going to help them today. No, we should be actively looking for and and engaging in those opportunities at, at every possible moment, not just perform it at random, but perform it as a daily existence in life. If you can't be kind, there's something wrong with you. If you can't be kind to another person, there is something seriously wrong in the heart. That's not what God designed us to do. Now, look, I understand. There are times that I have a hard time being kind. Yeah, I want to slap people. I want to punch people. Yeah, I want to throw chairs at them. But that's not kind, is it? Aren't you glad God extended kindness towards you? That his kindness is everlasting? That his kindness is long-suffering? What we find is we're putting on God's characteristics. Bowels of mercy and kindness. Kindness here. Look at the next one. Humbleness of mind. You start putting on mercy and you start being kind to people. You know what starts happening in your life? You start to be humble. Why? Because being humble means you're not number one. Extending mercy means you're preferring someone else. Extending kindness means you're preferring someone else. God preferred, if you will, you when he died on the cross for you. He demonstrated that. He came in humble form, in the flesh, as a baby to grow up, as a man to die. For your sin and for my sin. And we find this here, he says, you need to put on a humbleness of mind. Because often is the case, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We get caught up in the mindset of, hey, uh, I, I'm the most important one here. And if Christ is preeminent and we're putting on that mindset, that he is the preeminent one, that he is what this is all about, that he is in all and is all, then, then, then here, here, here's the humble part. I'm going to trust the Lord with that. The problem with the mindset of seeking vengeance, the problem with the mindset of uh, not being able to handle offense, the problem with uh, all of those things is that we think we're the more important one? And I, let's just be honest. Far too many Christians are thin-skinned. I mean, we get, we, we we get offended if a fly lands on our bacon. You know, we take offense at the drop of a hat. They looked at me funny in church. Who knows? I mean, eh, 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 you know, I, 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 and while I may sound a little like I'm making a jest of it, but 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 to be honest with you, we look—we can't read minds. You should know uh she was uh, the person that I reported to at one point in time. She was an unsaved uh, atheist, you know, unregenerate, rejector of God. But one thing that she always said is, she said, uh, "I stopped reading minds when I stopped walking on water." Basically, assigning the fact that the only person that can read minds is God. I'm like, well, well you're going to stand and give account for that statement, but okay. <laughs> You're gonna say, sit there and tell me you didn't know about God when you're quoting something like that? Okay. But, but that being said, look, we can't read minds. Here, you get the newborn babies, right? They're so cute and they're cuddly. And then you look at them and then all of a sudden they just look at you and they smile. And you're like, oh, they're smiling at me. And then along comes the one guy, what does he say? No, they're just, it's gas. And you're like, no, it's not. And then all of a sudden you hear that noise and they smile more and then they look at you and then they kind of get that look. And you're like, what are you doing? And then you're like, oh, it's your, you t- know, it's your turn to hold the baby. <laughs> you never know what's going on in a person's life. You know what the mindset should be is, you know, somebody sits there and thinks, okay, well, they looked at me funny. Maybe you need to sit there and if you acknowledge the fact that they looked at you funny, maybe that's a clue for you to go up to them and say, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Is there something I can help you with? Walk up to them and say, I thank you for being part of part of my life. Thank you for, 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 for being part of the body of Christ. I thank God for you. You know, it, it, it is, is, is some of the stuff that went on in, in these churches and you begin to look at it, uh, and all the stuff that Paul's dealing with, you know what he still always was saying? I thank God for you all. He was thankful even for the Christians that weren't behaving well. He was still thankful. But here he says, humbleness of mind, meekness, meekness. Being meek is something that really truly is something everyone needs to strive for. And as I've kind of given a definition of what meekness is, when you start looking in scripture, uh, meekness isn't the person that uh, shies away from conflict or anything of that nature. Because uh, you don't see Moses necessarily doing that. And if you will, using Moses as kind of the definition of meekness is uh, realizing that in the end, Moses set his desires aside. And as meekness is he decided, I'm going to trust God with the outcome. I'm not going to frustrate. I'm going to just trust. I'm going to let God handle that. Rather than getting myself involved, rather than saying something that I shouldn't say, rather than, than, than doing something that I ought not do, I'm going to just simply say, I'm going to let God handle the situation. That's what real meekness is about. Trusting God a lot more. A lot more than what we often do. And it's demonstrable. People see it. Just like when all of a sudden Moses gets attacked by his family for marrying an Ethiopian woman. And God says, you know what? I'm not even going to put up with that. Moses didn't hardly have to say anything, did he? Next thing you know is God says, all three of you to the temple or to the tabernacle right now. (laughs) Moses is like, okay. Kind of wonder what Ariam and Miriam were thinking along the way. Uh Oh. (laughs) And then God says, okay, we're going to start, you know, looking at skin color, uh, tag Miriam, you've got leprosy. Oh. God is in an interesting way. What did Moses do? Moses prayed for Miriam. That's meekness. The uprising against Moses. What did he do? He stood back and said, well, I'm going to let God handle it. He'll do something new, like open up the earth and swallow you whole. If I'm, if I'm not supposed to be this, then God will make it known. But if not, then, and what did God do? God opened up and swallowed him. Meekness. And finally in this verse, and we'll close with this, cause Get, you know, getting out of time, running out of time here. Long suffering. All of these things we find over there in Ephesians chapter four and throughout other parts of scripture. Uh, if we're going to put on that new man, we've got to put on all these things and long suffering, which is very much a self-defining term, is part of that. We have to be willing to suffer a long time some, in some cases. I mean, just think of how much God has put up with you. He's put up with me for a long time. He keeps giving me more years. He suffered long. Think of how long God has suffered with mankind. Six thousand years? We can't suffer six seconds, let alone six years. But there are things that we have to suffer long for. Because in the end, it just shows the glory of the Lord. Who he is, and how abundant his mercy, his kindness, is towards us. In verse 13 here, we're, we'll can you we'll pick this up, uh, Lord willing, next week. But he says, you know, if you will, one of the most important principles about about believers is this: is forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And that forgiveness is based on the forgiveness of Christ. As Christ forgave you, we're supposed to forgive each other. Has God ever forgiven a murderer? The evidence is in Scripture. Has he forgiven an adulterer? Has he ever forgiven a hothead that shoots his mouth off? Has he ever forgiven somebody that ran the other way? Has they ever forgiven somebody that has denied them? We have a hard time forgiving somebody if they cut us off on I-5. We have a hard time forgiving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes. And that's just plain flat sinful. And he says we're supposed to have a certain mindset with that. Lord willing, we'll take a look at it next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer, and then we'll get our 11 o'clock service going here in just a few moments. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again, Lord, for what you've given to us in your word and preserved it for us. And, Lord, I just pray as, as heavy of a subject as these principles are becoming, that, Lord, we would understand that they're building upon that foundation of Christ, brick by brick, principle by principle, Lord, so that we would be that building that glorifies and and honors you and gives you praise and glory for everything. I pray, Lord, you just keep these things that we've discussed this, uh, this morning in our hearts. That, Lord, we would strive to please you and honor you with them. Pray, Lord, you would just uh, continue to meet with us and speak to us for this 11 o'clock hour. Thank you again for all that you've done for us. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.